This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Hamilton Hubs are revealing funding from the province to help uh, attract visitors. Uh, and let's uh, we're going to talk with, uh, rather, uh, the uh, Concession Street BIA. Before we do, let's hear what MPP Ted McMeekin had to say. Co-managed by the Association of Municipalities of Ontario and the individual municipalities. So we'll look at uh, what the f- uh, final allocation is and in partnership with the various BIAs decide on projects. All right, let's bring in Christina Geisler, Concession Street BIA Executive Director, with us now. Christina, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate this. Hi, thanks for having me, Seth. So this must be good news for you. It is. It's great news. So Um, go ahead. mm -hmm. No, I mean, any time that not only um, the government and the city recognizes the value of what we do and of the business improvement areas and the small businesses, it's always a good news story. So how much is there? Does, is this divided up between all of the BIAs? What does it mean for Concession Street? Um, how the money will be allocated, um, we, we have to wait and see how that works. Um, we know that the government has promised um, just under a half a million dollars to be distributed amongst um, the 13 different BIAs across the city of Hamilton. How that will look and how much each one will get will be determined. Uh, every BIA is different. All of our needs are different. So... That remains to be seen. Uh, that being said, at the end of the day, is there that much money there? Well, there's 13 of us. At the, you know what? At the end of the day, anything is a help. Yeah. Um, so however it gets distributed and however it gets um, spread out across the different BIAs, we appreciate any financial assistance that we can get to help us elevate our business corridors. Uh, if they divide it evenly, that's about 30, $37,000 for each BIA. Can you see it being divided equally? I mean, if it's not, won't there be some squawking or uh, how do you, th- you know, or it will be whoever's got the best project? Again, we have to wait and see what direction we get from the city. Um, yeah, we, I do the same math myself, <laughs> but whether or not that's how much we'll get, it remains to be seen. But like I said, at the end of the day, anything is a help. Um, the BIAs do not work with a very big budget. Mm-hmm. So any additional money that we get helps us safeguard our communities, make them look better, um, help us help the businesses create an inviting um, business corridor to the visitors that come and see us. So how are you guys on Concession Street going to approach this? Are you going to try for more than the, the equal share? Well, the the announcement was just made yesterday, so definitely there's going to have to be some consultation with the membership and also with our board of management. So we, of course, always have a wish list of things that we want to get accomplished within our BIA boundary. So um, it's hard to say at this point what we're going to ask for and how much. Um, We still need to get the people to the table to discuss where we go from here. So uh, what, what would the amount of money determine how much or how you would spend it? Um, again, you must have a wish list, some idea of what you would do if all of a sudden somebody dropped a few thousand dollars in your pants. No, absolutely. Um, but, you know, like I said, we do have a wish list. We do work very closely with the city, and the city is very supportive of the business improvement areas. We've had um, a lot of support um, from our Ward 7 Councillor Skelly, who has helped us. Um, pay for the coach lanterns that um, illuminate our sidewalks. Um, that was definitely a safety initiative that we put in place to brighten up our business corridor. Councillor Jackson as well has been very helpful with um, uh, waste receptacles and, and benches and all that kind of stuff. The city also helped us with upgrading our gateway signs. So regardless of this money, we do have access to financial help to get us to help us get some of our projects done. And I can't speak for the other BIAs, but I'm sure, you know, they work as well very closely with the city. So this money will contribute to the different projects that I'm sure we all have in the pipe and and want that we want to see happen. Talk a little bit about the transition of the last several years, Christina. You know, I remember at one time talking to Michael Marini uh, with economic development, and there were certain little nuggets within the city and and how do we join them all together? Now it seems like, uh, you know, uh, every part of the city has a James Street or a Lock Street or a Hess Street or something going on. It's just amazing the way this is spread. Well, and that's exactly it. Like, we're so proud of the changes that we've seen up here on Concession Street. We've definitely seen a tremendous growth 
in businesses. Our vacancy rate is quite low. We've seen some exciting new businesses come on board. We've had businesses like Poke move up to the mountain. We've got Alcatraz Escape Rooms, which is the largest escape room in Hamilton. You know, we have about five or six more that are going to be opening their doors in the next month or two. So it really is an exciting time for the small businesses and an exciting time for us here on Concession Street to see people recognizing the potential and the value of investing within this community. How do you differentiate? A lot of the focus is on the lower city. A lot of focus is on those communities that I've suggested. Uh, How do you keep that momentum up there? Obviously, you're seeing it there as well. Yeah, no, I mean, we definitely, we keep shouting our successes. Um, We try and be very prominent um, through social media. Um, we try and organize on Concession Street lots of events that are open not only to the community around us, but to the extended community of Hamilton. We've got Sidewalk Sounds that's going to be kicking in in May. Our Street Fest is always a super popular event. So as long as we keep focusing on what we're doing, we do know that we're getting noticed because as the, as the director for the BIA, as I work with the other BIAs and I try and be as much around the city, the, the word is, is we hear there's great things happening on Concession Street. And as long as we hear that, then we know that we're being noticed and it'll come. We're confident it will come. What's the biggest challenge for this community? You know what? Um, I don't know if in the way of ch- challenges, it's a fantastic community. This is... It's a community that is so neighbor-centric. Whenever push comes to shove, we really all rally together and celebrate each other's successes. Um, it's, It's a great neighborhood. And the fact that geographically we're perched here just on the edge of the mountain brow, we've got the best views in the city. Um, And there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great stuff happening here. So, I mean, in the way of challenges, it's, you know, maybe sometimes breaking down the perceptions that people have of what's happening up here. People that come up here, I think, are starting to be very pleasantly surprised with what they're finding, both in the way of the kinds of shops that they're finding, and as well, you know, the things that we're doing to invite people to come and visit us. Especially up in the mountain, uh, we know what it's like, I'm, you know, big box centers on each side of, uh, of the link, and then, you know, obviously uh, a large mall in the center. How do you get the focus back to these sort of mom-and-pop places? Again, it's really, um, it's trying to celebrate what each of the different business owners offer, and just that personal attention that the visitors get when they come to concession. Really, um, you know, it's one of those things that I think I've, I've written it in articles in the past. It's concession street businesses, they're the kind of shops that, you, that when you walk in, the business owners remember your name. And, you know, you can come in and they'll know how you want your coffee and they'll know what kind of color of clothing or what sits well on you if you go into linseeds or you, they start to see those familiar faces. And it's really that relationship that the business owners really work hard to build with their clientele is what makes shopping on Concession Street and within any BIA so, so special. So that's what we're going to keep trying to promote. And hopefully, you know, the residents will remember when they have to shop, maybe not to hit the big box store and to really support that local small business owner that puts so much of themselves um, into into what they do. You know, it's interesting, especially over the last few years, talking to entrepreneurs and small business persons who are who are starting, uh, you know, such a businesses in the city. It's amazing how their their businesses change in order for them to succeed and 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 to prosper. Uh, you know, whether it's, ca- you know, carrying certain lines or offering this service or that service, they really depend on the people around them, on the neighborhoods that, that really access those streets to determine what it is that they carry, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what some of these businesses do so well. They really do listen to what the customers want and whether it's changing how they do it or they shift you know, more into like providing catering services or um, more of an online presence or you know, all that kind of stuff. Those are all things that every business is different and they all assess what works best for them. And I think to remain 
stagnant in your business model is a dangerous thing in today's day and age. So those that are flexible and bend with how the world is changing are the ones that are really proving to be successful. What about residents and the residential side of this? How do they feel about this street uh, revamping? Well, there definitely our community is amazing. There is such wonderful loyalty to shopping small, to supporting the small businesses. And the recognition, the business owners that recognize the residents, it goes both ways. The residents know who own the shops. They know the faces they're going to see when they walk in there. Mm. And I think that's part of that dual relationship that makes the experiences here, hopefully for most people, a really nice one when they come and shop here. Are you surprised that customers are looking that way again? I mean, are you surprised that, that, that this is working? I don't think so because, you know, I've always genuinely believed that it doesn't matter what it is, what service, what product you're selling, it's all about relationships. In today's day and age, developing and strengthening that relationship with your customer is key to success. And um, and I think customers respond to it and businesses get it. And when it clicks, it doesn't surprise me that it seems to be shifting more this way. Is it difficult to get merchants, entrepreneurs on board with the changing times? No, I mean, I think there are some, you know, the more traditional business um, owners that sometimes have been perceived to be more reluctant to kind of changing with the times. But when they see the, the effects of, the ones that maybe are a little bit more dynamic and change and adjust themselves to the customers, they see that it works. They're recognizing the value of the presence on social media. Um, you know, on the on our on any of our social media platforms, I try and promote everybody. And if they see something, I post something, and they're like, "Oh my goodness, that post came in, and we had like four customers come in and asking about it." Yeah. They're starting to get it. So, little bit by little bit, it's a process. But uh, but they're, we're definitely all getting there. Is it technology that's been the big boost to helping these small businesses? Like you said, being able to you know to contact customers on a personal level, even if it's via email, and saying we have this, we have that. I mean, is that one of the reasons this has worked? Well, it definitely helps, and it also helps that certainly social media or having mailing distribution lists to your customer lists. All that stuff is free, and it's available, and it simplifies how you reach your customer. So the businesses that utilize that, I think definitely are seeing the benefits of it. What advice do you have for people who are, you know, because, again, the city's filled with young young entrepreneurs right now, people looking for, you know, the, the golden ticket sort of thing. And, 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 you know, even if the area is thriving, that doesn't mean your business is going to do well. What, what advice do you have for people interested in, in that are banging on your doors asking for advice? Well, I mean, I definitely always say there is no golden ticket. The small business owner works really hard. Um, You know, they put so much more of themselves into the day-to-day and the amount of hours that you need to invest into your business. I think very often some of the younger entrepreneurs underestimate that. And the other thing that I think um, startup businesses underestimate is the time that it takes to let people know that you exist. Hmm. That's the biggest challenge. It doesn't matter, I think, how wonderful your product, service, plate of food is. If people don't know you're there, they're not going to come. So what they really need to focus on is letting the world know, hello, I'm here, and this is what I can do, um, and really leveraging the tools that you have around you to do that. You need to be patient. It takes time. There's businesses that come in and expect to be pulling in the per, uh, kind of an anticipated profit model that sometimes takes years to build. Hmm. Even the businesses that, you know, seem to have it all together and are doing really well, it took them a while to get there. So you have to dig in. You have to have a business plan. You need to have contingencies for when it gets tough. But if you persevere and you're flexible and you listen to your customers and you look at the world around you, you know, you can make a go of it. You really can. Obviously, the lower city neglected for a long time, finally showing signs of resurgence and, and, and starting to boom. How does that affect what's going on on Concession Street? Is it competition? Is it good? Is it bad? Because uh, for the longest time, everybody used to just head up that way for everything and, and leave the lower city. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the whole renaissance that happening that, that is happening, uh, is it an upper lower city thing? Is it a competition? Is it everybody does well as soon as some of us do? How, how do you view all that? 
You know what? Honestly, I look at it, it's a really big sandbox. There's room for everybody. We have seen businesses for a million different reasons move around, shift around. Um, we've been fortunate. We had steel town pickers that moved up here from Ottawa Street. Um, next, end of this month, Hamilton Belly Dance is opening up their doors, and they're coming up from the downtown. And, and conversely, we've had businesses that have migrated down. So it happens. Businesses move around, and that's okay. Um, at the end of the day, everything balances out the way it's supposed to. And I think we all need to focus on we're celebrating and promoting Hamilton and where we can unify, and there, there is no competition, really. We work so closely amongst the other BIAs, and we support each other and share successes and share tips and ideas. And really, I think that's what's going to make Hamilton the place to be. If people want to find out what is going on on Concession Street, where do they go? Um, our website, concessionstreet.ca. We have a full directory of all of our businesses. We have the full lineup of all of our events that are happening. And as well on social media, we have the same handle for everything, Concession BIA. Follow us and stay up to date with every, all the great stuff happening here. Christina Geisler has been with us, Concession Street BIA Executive Director. Christina, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots being said about Canada. Uh, some say Trudeau's a very good guy. Uh, some say even with this left-wing crazy guy Trudeau, they're still our pals. All sorts of funny things coming out of the United States in regard to uh, Trudeau, trade, and, uh, and Trump. In regard to uh, things that he had said in a fundraising Missouri speech, President Trump said that he made up facts about trade in a meeting with Trudeau. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised here. Uh, here's what uh, the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, said in regard to, uh, I guess, uh, us getting chucked under the bus. This is so important to you economically that what he's doing is, in essence, putting at risk the relationship. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate this. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. All right, where do we start? Let's start with the speech in Missouri. What did he say? What was he trying to say? And how does Canada respond to this sort of comment? Yeah, I mean, even if you feel that Donald Trump doesn't read briefing notes or keep up to date with a lot of political facts, this is actually kind of a bizarre story. And the the grand scheme of things, as people now know, or most of your listeners now know, apparently there was a discussion between President Donald Trump and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau based on whether or not the U.S. runs a trade deficit with Canada. Trudeau was obviously saying that the U.S. does not have a trade deficit with Canada, and I'm just actually looking at something just to quote to you directly. Tr- um, Trump apparently said to him something to the effect of, wrong, Justin, you do, and then added apparently to the Missouri audience that he didn't even know, I had no idea. So basically he just made up a fact, just made up a statement, and wanted to probably see what Trudeau's reaction would be like when that happened. Now naturally during that, uh, Trudeau apparently denied several times that there was any sort of a trade deficit. And it finally came to the point where Trump had to actually send out one of his aides, so to speak, to actually check and see if this is true. So apparently this is what the aide said when he came back in the recording that was released just a day or so ago. Well, sir, you're actually right. We have no deficit, but that doesn't include energy and timber. And when you do, we lose $17 billion a year. It's incredible. So that's basically Donald Trump's base, uh, defense of it, is that he didn't know what he was talking about. He had absolutely no, no idea. It was obviously proven to him that he was incorrect in what he had said, yet somehow his aide twisted around so that it still came out with the U.S. looking like it was a benefit, that you know it did have a trade deficit to some degree, and that Trump wasn't completely wrong in his statement. You know, the real fact is, that, Scott, that no one expects any world leader to have every single fact at his or her fingertips no. at all. Mm-hmm. There have been recorded conversations that have been released over the years between one world leader and another when one of the, one of the two 
either men or women or men and women, one of them says, no, I actually don't know the answer to this. I'll have to check into it. I'll have to look into it. It's not a sign of weakness if you don't have that fact. Yeah. And Trump could have ended this very quickly by having the one-off with Trudeau saying, well, I could have sworn we had a trade deficit. Trudeau would have then obviously said, no, we don't. And then, Turner, uh, then, uh, sorry, then Trump could have sent out his aid, and that would have been the end of it. It's just a very silly event. Especially at this time when these negotiations have been going on for weeks. Isn't this information a little late to the table? Well, you would certainly think that a fact like this anyway, that Trump should have known it. And I'm surprised that he actually didn't know this. And the answer is no. The U.S. does not have a trade deficit. I'm, I wouldn't go as far as Mark Garneau said that it's a, it's a trade surplus. But overall, in the grand scheme of things, the U.S. comes out relatively far ahead because it is the biggest of the three trading partners in NAFTA. And it's certainly true what Donald Trump says, that in certain cases, the U.S. is often left holding the bag in certain instances with NATO and various other organizations, where the U.S. puts up a very huge financial commitment and they don't get a lot in return. That's frustrating. But when it comes to the U.S., and there have been studies about this, and I've written about them, Scott, it actually shows that all three trading partners in NAFTA, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, all benefit in their own ways. It's just that the American benefit isn't as great on sort of a per capita basis as compared to Canada and Mexico, but that's simply because the Canadian economy and the Mexican economy is smaller than the American economy. So the American economy, to see this massive benefit, would obviously need to see or, ex- or have lo- numbers or receive financial numbers that are much larger than either they are going to get, they assume they're going to get, or they expect they're going to get. So that's really where Trump's frustration primarily is. And the fact that he actually doesn't know this, when there are, I've quoted at least three or four papers over the course of my career that have shown this, I'm sure they've got to be at least, what, another five to ten more. It's at his fingertips. He could have got it. He could have asked anybody to get it for him. And it's such a simple fact that you would think he would know it. Uh, not knowing the facts, one thing, again, big job, lots going on there, but boasting about it and boasting about tricking or misleading somebody to your base, where do you take that? You know, again, I mean, I don't have any great love for Justin Trudeau in terms of his political ideas and his ideology in general. I think he's been an extremely weak leader for this country and among the weakest prime ministers we've ever had. And this is not the first time I've ever said it. I've said it multiple times in the past. And it has nothing to do with partisanship. There have been liberals that have done very well in the role. Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, even though I wouldn't have voted for either one of them, ran fairly effective uh, had or had fairly effective tenures at 24 Sussex, Chrétien with a very long one, and Paul Martin, I mean, obviously, although it fell flat after 19 months, he at least was looking at issues such as fiscal prudence and other measures and trying to keep taxes low and trying to be realistic about how the Canadian economy can work, how businesses can grow, etc., there are liberal prime ministers who are in control of the situation. Justin Trudeau, unfortunately, just doesn't have the, the knowledge, skills, or experience to really do so, and that's what makes him weak. Nevertheless, no matter what you feel about Justin Trudeau, and there are other world leaders who feel probably the same way that Donald Trump does, it's really wrong for the President of the United States to go out to Missouri, speak at a fundraiser, speak to a base of supporters, and treat Canada like it's a complete and utter infant that, well, I swatted him away, ha, 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 I told him he was wrong, and, you know, and in the end, I was about half right. I did pretty well. I don't see how it actually benefits Trump at all. And I, again, as I said, it's not a sign of weakness if you don't have a certain detail at your fingertips, even one as basic as this. It actually would show a lot of class on his part to actually go back and ask someone for it. Now, again, that's not Donald Trump. We know that. And again, I think Donald Trump just basically wants to go into various meetings, including this fundraiser, and come out looking like the powerhouse, you know, the sort of the, the type A personality leader. Be, you know, thump his, his hand on his chest, 
beat him and basically say that you no matter what, the United States is a powerful country, and I have a powerful relationship over all the other countries who deal with me, especially Canada, which is just this little tiny country up to the north that we don't worry about. That's what it makes it look like, and I think that's just bad. How does this interfere with NAFTA negotiations when, Mm -hmm. you know, you're sitting there having these grueling negotiations over an extended period of time, and, you know, basically the CEO stands up and, and starts giving incorrect data? Yeah, and that's a fascinating question. I guess I'm going to put it this way, and it'll be sort of twofold very quickly. I don't think it's going to have an overall effect. Like, it's not going to have a chill effect whatsoever on NAFTA, simply because I think that NAFTA and the success of NAFTA is much greater than Donald Trump, Justin Trudeau, and others. This is actually based upon the economic success of the region, including Mexico as well. For that reason... Although I'm sure that Justin Trudeau and his liberal senior advisors are probably furious behind the scenes, A, that this story came out, and B, that they're made to look like the fools at a fundraising event for, you know, for Republicans in the United States, I think that in itself is obviously irritating, and it's something they don't want to face on a regular basis with Donald Trump. On the other hand, I think they know what Donald Trump is like. They know how he operates. They've been dealing with him now for over a year. They understand the fact that Donald Trump doesn't really look or doesn't dig very deep, shall we say, into facts and figures. He often talks off the cuff. He speaks from the gut. He doesn't worry about textbooks, academic material, papers, etc. And I don't think fight numbers really matter a great deal to him. But if you're, if you're Christia Freeland and you're there at the negotiating table with all of your counterparts and the staff and whatever, and, and, and uh, the, the U.S. Is, is thumping its chest and saying this, this, that, and the other, like at what point does the U.S. representative who's there negotiating, at what point do, they, do his opponents just roll their eyes at him and say, you got no credibility here. So how can you, you know, the president's even contradicting the numbers. But remember, the person thumping his chest is Donald Trump. Yeah. The trade representative's not doing that. In fact, we, and and I'm really being serious when I say this, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors at a lot of these meetings. And for all I know, and I'm not suggesting anything, the trade representative for the U.S. may be saying something very different than Donald Trump is. I don't know. For all I know, he could also be, you know, he could also be basically parroting exactly what Donald Trump says. We have absolutely no idea. But again, trade representatives, cabinet ministers, caucus members, etc., they all handle things very differently in the room. And I think a lot of people know what Donald Trump is like. And sometimes you see forces that are circumventing around him. Like, for example, during the 2016 presidential election, as you may remember, for a period of time, Donald Trump was running his own campaign, and Republicans were running their own campaign because they couldn't necessarily (laughs) see eye-to-eye with the president, so they had to basically do something different to ensure success. It may very well be in these trade negotiations or renegotiations that the trade representatives are working around Donald Trump. They're still working within the White House, and they obviously have a connection one way or the other or a line to the president or a line to his senior advisors. But I think they all know that they have a job to do, and that job is to get the best possible deal for their respective countries. Ergo, although Christia Freeland and many others are going to be irritated behind the scenes in private, in public, they're going to have a shining face and they're going to work hard to ensure that NAFTA is renegotiated properly. All right. Uh, a while ago, uh, Trump uh, jettisoned Gary Cohn and it replaced has now replaced him with Larry uh, Kudlow, who mm-hmm. is now the new White House National Economic Council. Describe Correct. the significance of this position. I hear these two are like-minded. So is Trump going to clash with him as much as he did with Cohn? Well, you see, it's kind of interesting. Um, Lawrence, or Larry, if you like, Kudlow, has actually been a media analyst for many, many years. If anyone has ever watched Mm -hmm. the network CNBC, well, he's had his own show there in the past for many years, and he's been an analyst for many years. He used to be involved with Bear Stearns, a a company which unfortunately folded many years ago during the subprime mortgage crisis, as you may remember. But Larry Kudlow is very well experienced in economics, and he has been an economics analyst for many decades. Here's the interesting part. You're right. Like Gary Cohn, Larry Kudlow is a free trader. 
He's actually a supply sider from supply side economics. If people remember the days of Ronald Reagan, he actually believes in trade liberalization. He believes in free trade. He wants less government intrusion, not more. And he is definitely not by any means an economic nationalist. So you're right. In theory, you look at this with the one difference being that Larry Kudlow is a Republican and declares himself to be, whereas Gary Cohn was a Democrat for many years, although he's acknowledged that he's voted for Republicans in the past and given money to them, which is on record. We have seen that. What's the real difference? The difference here is that Larry Kudlow has tried to bridge both elements. He has tried to remain independent in terms of his free market advocacy and his economic conservatism, or if you like, fiscal conservative approach to the way he looks at things. He has tried to maintain that as well as having a pro-Trump advocacy for things such as the wall. He's actually been a big supporter of it and believes that it can be financially secure. In other words, that the money can be acquired to build it. So it's interesting that Kudlow has tried to bridge both elements, and that's what makes him different than Gary Cohn. Gary Cohn was there as a free trader and whatnot, and he did the best job that he could to sort of serve as a counterbalance to Trump, but he didn't have that balance whatsoever that Kudlow has developed for over, I'd say, about two and a half to three years. That's where Kudlow comes in handy there. He will obviously be supportive of President Trump on certain issues, but he's not going to be a yes-man. And maybe that's the sort of thing Trump wants. Maybe he wants a Republican who will be combative against him rather than having a person who is basically a nominal Democrat going up against him. So that might be a fascinating dynamic. Uh, my greatest fear is not the steel thing, but that we will walk away from NAFTA. Uh, will that take the sting out of Trump's threats? Let's hope so. It is, it's obviously very clear that Larry Kudlow believes in NAFTA. He supports NAFTA. He supported NAFTA back at the time when it was signed in 1994. A lot thought that the reason that Cohen was out because of him being pro-NAFTA, but that's obviously not the case here. No, no, I don't think it actually is. The the problem with Gary Cohen, as you may remember, is that he was anti-tariff, much like Larry Kudlow was anti-tariff. Cohen really fought very hard against tariffs being brought in for every country, not just Canada and Mexico, but across the world. And he lost a very, well, shall we say, it was a private battle, but it was a very vocal battle between other groups and other camps within the, um, within the Trump administration. And for that reason, when the other side won, Gary Cohen was out. Larry Kudlow was not part of that, uh, that whole dynamic. He actually has been against tariffs well, literally since the very start of his career. And I think that Trump probably likes the fact that Kudlow's going to come in and be opposed to, say, Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, and others who were actually in favor of bringing in the tariffs. He probably likes that because, as we know, and Trump has said this on the record, he likes to have opposing forces in his cabinet fight one another. The difference here is, though, is that Larry Kudlow is more on side with Donald Trump on certain issues than Gary Cohn would ever have been, even if his opinion had ever been asked about certain things, such as, say, the wall with Mexico, for example. That's where Larry Kudlow has a huge advantage. No one is saying that anybody who goes into that position as a senior economic advisor would be perfect, but Larry Kudlow is more, should we say, properly suited for this role with Donald Trump as president. He's also more media savvy than just about anybody who's ever come in the White House as well. And while that certainly didn't work well for, say, Anthony Scaramucci, as we may remember, Kudlow was more measured in his responses. He's more careful in what he says. And he's more directly interested in fiscal conservative matters and issues and ensuring that there is more trade in the world and more liberalized trade than anything else that, yes, he will serve as a good counterbalance to Donald Trump. And let's hope in this one instance that the president of the United States is willing to listen to his, inten- to his very intelligent counsel. Canada must be breathing a sigh of relief, though, because in the end, you know, whether it's this guy or, or, or anyone else, there doesn't seem to be a lot of support for tearing up NAFTA. I mean, at the end of the no. day, this will just be amended and we'll move on, really, won't we? Well, well, we hope so. I mean, as of right now, it hasn't been amended. And as of right now, we are at loggerheads. 
you know, that's but he, not- is Trump going to go against every one of like all these people that are supporting us? I mean, e- even this guy who came out and said uh, called Trudeau a crazy left winger. I mean, <laughs> even even he supports it. So uh, who, who's Trump fighting on this? Well, you see, when Kudlow called him that, he was actually right. <laughs> That's the I'm sorry, I knew I'm I asked sorry. the wrong guy here that question. I know, I know. But yes, in terms of all kidding aside, I'm going to get hammered for that. Okay, so in terms of NAFTA, yes, I think Canada will probably be much happier with Larry Kudlow at the helm than anyone else. Naturally, they'll look at Kudlow and say, well, he's a Republican. He's known to be a libertarian, mostly in his views, although he does have some small C conservative positions. He's definitely not on side with us. He was critical of our prime minister, but he's working for the greater good of the North American economy, which has always been Larry Kudlow's mantra from the days he was on TV and radio to now. This is where it becomes very advantageous to have someone who is media savvy and who also is able to negotiate with others. I mean, Larry Kudlow spent a lot of time with Bear Stearns, and he had to work in boardrooms and other things to ensure that things got done at that organization and that whatever they wanted to deal with, whatever they felt was important with the stock market, with uh, the global economy, mm-hmm. with basically shareholders, stakeholders, etc., to ensure that it got done. Larry Kudlow knows how to work with people. He's actually apparently a very pleasant person behind the scene. And I think that this may actually help, not hinder NAFTA overall. But to say that this is all going to ensure that NAFTA becomes the gold standard, it's all renegotiated, everything will be hunky-dory at the end, well, we'll see, because there's one person who's still standing as a big roadblock in front of it, and that's President Donald Trump. Michael Tobison with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist and relationship expert, sexwithdrjess.com to find out more. She's with us now. Jess, thanks for taking the time. As always, greatly appreciated. Happy to be here. So are we taking this too far, or uh, is this what the Me Too movement's all about? I think I don't know if it's just about the Me Too movement. It's ultimately about, I think, power and privilege and, you know, notions of gender tied in here. I mean, Katy Perry makes the assumption that based on her gender and based on her privilege as a celebrity, and I think as a sex symbol, she assumes that this guy, Benjamin, should be lucky to kiss her, and she assumes that we all think it's hilarious and adorable. And, you know, he said that he was uncomfortable. His Instagram account also said that he's okay with it. People have argued, well, he was laughing. He didn't really seem upset. But again, I think there's, I think there's a couple of ways power plays a role in this incident. And I do think that if, uh, if the gender roles were, were reversed, we'd be seeing it differently. And so first and foremost, this is her show and his career is in her hands. So the power imbalance is undeniable. Whether he wanted to do it or not, he's going to do it. With the cameras rolling, these other guys screaming, like yeah. there's a lot of pressure, first and foremost. Second, I think that notions of masculinity, even the way you're responding, right, it suggests that a man is hypersexual. Men are expected to be ready to go, desperate for sex. That he wa- we're way. just assuming he wanted that. Yeah, and, and he's supposed to be thankful mm-hmm. when a woman, especially a beautiful, famous sex symbol, pays him attention. And so even if this isn't what feels good for him as a human being, as a man, the prescriptions of manhood suggest that he should want it. He should like it. Mm-hmm. And since it's Katy Perry, yep. he should even brag about it. And yep. so I think this puts him in a tough spot. And then the third part's a little bit more nuanced to me, but I think it really matters. Um, you know, when, when someone's famous or someone with more power interacts with, you know, a mere mortal or someone with less financial or, let's say, social capital, Mm -hmm. whether it's Katie interacting with this guy or a manager at your local bar kind of interacting with a server, okay? The person with less power has been trained to make the more powerful person feel comfortable, even when they make them feel uncomfortable. So the person with less power is expected to be polite and kind of safeguard the feelings of the person with power, so I, I kind of think back to my nightclub days because people are always yelling and screaming. Well, if he didn't like it, why didn't he stand up? Same thing. If she wasn't into it, why doesn't she scream no and walk out? But, you know, I think about like a manager 
um, when I used to bartend in the nightclubs of Toronto. This is like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Would pull me into his lap in the back office of the nightclubs. And all I wanted to do was kick him in the balls. Yeah. But that meant I didn't have a job anymore. Or if, if the owner walked in and made like a lewd comment about my breasts, my job was to smile and laugh it off. And you can all sit here and judge me and be like, I would stand up. You don't need a job that badly. Listen. You know, God forbid I make this guy feel badly. My job as the subjugated person was to make sure he wasn't uncomfortable. And so you hear this language of, you know, we've been taught that the feelings of people in power are more important than the safety of the people under them or their victims. And I I think this happens all the time. Um, Do I think it's comparable, you know, to to, um, other sexual transgressions or other forms of sexual assault? Probably not. I don't think I'm the person to create the hierarchy. But, you know, he said he was uncomfortable. Um, and I know he looked fine. Everybody's saying he looked fine. Come mm. on. He was laughing. But I, I can tell you that I've looked fine because I felt that I have to. And I'll tell you, it still happens to me. As a woman walking into environments and having people make comments that make me uncomfortable, you know, I'd be fighting all day long sometimes. Mm. Uh, and I'd be losing all of my, I, I, like, I don't work with clients one-on-one, but all of my big powerful clients. Sometimes when I walk into a room, 99% of people are respectful, but the 1% isn't. And it's more my job to make sure that everyone's comfortable. Like I'm not supposed to embarrass that 1%. Mm. And sometimes I have to, like sometimes I have to get a little bit saucy back with them. And they're like, Oh, she's, she's got a mouth on her. Yeah. But really, like, <laughs> you're, you're demeaning me. I worked really hard and I spread a lot of, you know, quite valuable knowledge for you to talk about my boots. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and whether or not he feels harassed or not is the most important thing here. Obviously, he gets to decide whether he feels good about this interaction or not. But however he feels, if he comes out and says, you know what, I'm perfectly fine with it, that doesn't mean that her behavior is okay because another man might have felt entirely differently. So why don't we just not trick people into kissing you? Do you know what I mean? Like, just don't do it. Here's another, here's another scenario, hypothetical situation. What if she had, you know, planted the lip lock on him and then he took it one step further as she would have done? Then maybe, mm. pe- and, and maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, touched her inappropriately or did mm-hmm. something he shouldn't mm-hmm. have done. How would it have been spun then? Right. Imagine he had like decided, well, she put it on the lips when I was going to put on the cheek. So now I'm going to give her some tongue. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, you know and, and I, I or grope her rear end or something. Exactly. And people will always say like, well, you have a right. You just stand up for yourself. And power and privilege don't operate that way. Not everybody has the, like we, we use the term intersectionality, right? Not everybody has the same capacity to survive in the same way. Like you may feel that you can walk out and say, there's no excuse for this. I'm out of here. But a kid who works at a cashier and maybe he doesn't have family support and maybe he's barely making ends meet and maybe he's living behind the poverty line below the poverty line doesn't have the same choices as me. Just like I don't have the same choices as maybe somebody who's six, you know, Warren Buffett sort of thing to like take it to extremes. Right. Uh, Did she sexually assault him then? Did she assault him? Oh, I don't know about that language. Like I, I don't know when it comes to the law and I, I do have some concerns and I'd be careful how I say this, but, um, you know, I don't want to conflate other types of, like, other, I, I don't, right. you know what, right. I, I should yep. be very yep. careful. But I think some things are worse than others. It's not up to me to decide what's worse. Obviously, like, it's up to him to decide. Like, what if, you know, we, we say, like, you know, people will say that the lines of consent get blurry, but if you put a finger in their bum, they're, they're going to know the, <laughs> the lines of consent. <laughs> yeah, right? like, that does draw your attention. Yes, yeah, good point. Right, when people can figure out consent when it's good for themselves, and I, this is up to this guy to decide whether it was assault. And uh, from a legal perspective, I, I really just don't know. Why are um, we talking about this now, Jess? Why is this an issue? Because normally we wouldn't even be, you know, whoop de doo it's, it's idle, yeah. who cares? Yeah, I think, um, well, idle's lucky anyone's talking about them. But anyhow, yeah. <laughs> I think um, this is just kind of like a small thing. And when we talk about kids, for instance, right, like not forcing kids to give an auntie or an uncle or a grandpa or grandma a kiss, this is kind of like one of those learning opportunities where we say, you know what, like, does she need to go to jail? I don't think many people Mm -hmm. will think she needs to go to jail. But can we use this as an opportunity to say, listen, like, you can't treat men 
like they all want you, right? Like I don't care how hot you are, how famous you are. It's the same thing with rich men thinking that they can grab a woman by the, you know what? Yeah. Like just because you are Katy Perry or just because you're Weinstein doesn't mean that you that everybody wants you. And if everybody does act as though they want you, you have a responsibility to check your privilege. I'm very aware of that. Like, thank God I'm married. But I, I think about like if I was dating, how... I would be seen differently and how, you know, even having resources, like having financial resources changes your position. Like now if someone were to grab me and and sit me on their lap, that just wouldn't be happening. But I think Mm -hmm. about when I was 18 working in the bar and I wasn't like people could say, what were you wearing or what was the message you were sending out? Let me tell you, I've never shown any interest in men. (laughs) I've actually been with my husband from way back then almost. I wasn't sending out any signals. And why should we be teaching me to defend myself instead of teaching people to stop being jerk. Mm. Like so, a, I think it's a jerk move, unless he says it wasn't. If he liked it, who, who knows? Let's be honest. This could all be staged to begin with. That's, a, way, that's my next point, is this yeah. could all be staged. Yeah. And my guess is it was, in some form. But it's form. still a terrible example. Yeah. Um, when you think about, like, your kids, right? Like, how would you like it if, I don't know, your friend was having your daughter uh, kiss on the cheek to say goodbye, and all of a sudden he kissed on the lips? Like, yeah. that wouldn't be cool, right? No, Whether no. she's 16 or or six or 19. I think the kid, this guy was 19, right? Yeah. So, I mean, just be nicer, people. Like, be considerate. And you can say it's, I think a lot of people will be like, oh, it's much ado about nothing. But that's your perspective, right? And again, all that matters really is his and hers, right? But you're, that's a really great point. What if he had taken it to the next level? How would people respond to, be responded? And honestly, if the gender roles were reversed, people would be responding differently. And that's, again, comes to the fact that we live in a culture that sees women as sexual victims as, and men as sexual conquerors. Mm. And the idea that like women have to or do use our sexuality to get ahead. But it's a culture in which our sexuality is never denied. Like when you walk into a room, I, I've read reviews of my work where like I'll do great work with, with, with uh, an all-women's group, for instance, okay? And even in these reviews, they'll write about how much they learned and how much they love it, but they also have to comment on my, our, my body. And you can say, oh, it's women commenting on your body, but we've made a culture in which we cannot ignore women's bodies. Like, mm. we make it the center. I don't make it the center of myself. Not Don't get me wrong. I like yeah. to look good. I live in this world. But I, I think that... Yeah, I think gender matters, I think power matters, and I don't think that can be ignored in this case. Is this being raised because it was an offensive act, or is it being raised because guys are saying, look, double standard, you guys are doing it too, I get it too. Is, is it because this act was offensive, or is it being raised because there's a double standard? I think both. And I don't think that any person who is fighting for your really fighting for equal rights or who calls themselves a feminist wants men to be put in a terrible situation either. I mean, like, feminism is good for men, too. When we talk about, you know, men are feeling uncomfortable and not knowing what's okay, and we need to talk about that as well. So, yeah, I, I think double standards are bad for all genders. I think sexism is bad for all genders. Sexism hurts men, too, right? Like, we tell men that you're not allowed to have, to have feelings. Like, what if this guy really wants to wait until he's married? So be it. Should his feelings be respected regardless of his gender? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't really judge women who want to wait to have sex until marriage but we judge or we make a mockery of men like the, the double standards around gender are absurd and it flows in both directions i mean we do live in a world in which men earn more they have more political power political economic power and they have you know um some privilege some serious privilege in that respect but privilege is not uh something that we should ever feel ashamed of uh, privilege is something that we just need to be aware of and check and katie perry can learn a lesson for this, although I'm sure she won't, because she just has too much of it, and she continues to be rewarded. We uh, talk about the Me Too movement a a lot, obviously, and have over the last uh, several weeks and months and such, uh, and have commented that it seems to be, although it seems to be in Hollywood and, and private industry, it seems to not necessarily have made the impact on the music industry, although we're certainly seeing, you know, uh, evidence that, that it has, but certainly not to the impact that it has on uh, the film industry. Uh, does that mean now, we, like, I mean, we all know what Katy Perry's shtick is. I mean, I mean you, t- you called her sex idol or something to that point. I forget what term you use, but... Yeah, um, she's a sex symbol. I sex think. symbol. Like, that I was the one I... Yeah, sex symbol. Treated like a sex which, symbol. Which, which, again, you know, uh, a few years ago would have been, a, you know, a term used a lot. Is that term bad now and what does what what happens with katie perry's shtick 
That's a good question. I, I don't know if it's if it's a bad term. I guess, uh, you know, on me, I shouldn't label someone if they don't want to label themselves that way. I do think that she's seen as quite attractive, right? Yeah, like absolutely. The yeah. standards it of is what, it is, what, yeah. what a woman is supposed to look like, and a lot of people would find her very attractive. Um, in terms of hitting the music industry, I mean, look at people like R. Kelly, right? Like, this guy mm-hmm. has been preying on young women for so many years. And I mean, I can tell you, like, I really like the sound of his music, but I do not want to listen to it because I don't want to give money to somebody like that. But we continue to play his music because we're like, well, we just see beyond him and see his art. I think we did the same thing with Woody, Woody Allen, correct? Um, am I getting yep, that name yep, right? Yep. Um, in the music industry, it runs rampant as well. And uh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere you look. From- so are times changing? Is the, is the pendulum shifting here? Oh, yes, because I think young people get it. I think like young people understand that you need to treat people with more respect. Young people, and nobody likes this. This is the thing. Each generation is critical of the next one coming up. I am optimistic for the next one coming up. Parents don't like that their, young, their kids are saying to them, hey, maybe don't use that racial slur. Yeah. Hey, they're more, more, they're more moral than the parents are. Right. Yeah. Well, and, it's, and it's very scary because no one wants to think that the younger folks have something to teach us. Listen, I have a lot of reverence for, for my elders. I come from the Eastern cultures of respecting and revering my elders. Having said that, some things do have to change, and history changes for the better. And I think that young, a lot of these young people, they want to be on the right side of history. So the Madonnas and the Katy Perrys, thing of the past? No, of course not. I mean, uh, Katie's behavior isn't, that, that specific behavior, I can't speak to her other behavior, I don't really know, know much about her, isn't cool. But it doesn't mean that you can't be sexy and that you can't use sexuality, whether you're a man or a woman. Look at, like, you know, Genuine or any of these hot guys. No, I don't think we're going to stop seeing um, people who enjoy being sexy and expressing themselves sexually. What I think we will see is a broader range of what that looks like in terms of size and shape mm. and um, and gender fluidity and and race and ethnicity. I think we'll see more of that um, and age. And I think that's a great thing. Like, I mean, sex is some like I, my my career, my job and I'm busy. Let me tell you, it exists because sex is a big deal because we've made it into something that's a big deal. And um, I think this next generation is looking at it from a far more complex and nuanced lens. And I think it's a positive thing. But no, we won't get rid of Madonna. Madonna is an interesting person who's multi-layered as well. I think we'll mm. just have more interesting, bright voices. Um, I know people will always say the world is getting worse, but the data, of course, suggests otherwise when we look at yeah. issues around the world being eradicated, like you know, child poverty and, and violence and those type of things going down. We see more of it because it's all over Facebook. Jess O'Reilly has been with us, Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist and relationship expert, sexwithdrjess.com to find out more. Jess, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.